Thank you for listening to The Rest is History. For bonus episodes, early access, ad-free listening, and access to our chat community, sign up at restishistorypod.com. That's restishistorypod.com. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Once there was darkness, and then there was light. Once human beings lived in a state of superstition and savagery, enslaved by magic and the doctrines of the Catholic Church. And then, beginning in the salons of 18th century France, a group of thinkers in wigs led them out into the light of reason, science, revolution, and the guillotine. That's the traditional... <laughs> that's the, oh, Dominic! That's the traditional explanation of the Enlightenment. Anyway, and I'm joined by my very own Jean-Jacques Rousseau, a man of chilly, cerebral faith, Tom Holland... Uh, Tom, was that a fair uh, description of the Enlightenment, do you think? Well, you, you, you could almost have been describing the Protestant Reformation, of course. I could, yes. Well, we'll um, go on to say, won't we, whether they are different or not. Well, yes. Uh, I, I, mean, I mean, I know that um, I'm kind of nervous about uh, what I'm about to say, because I, I know that um, certain listeners to the podcast have begun the uh, a drinking game in which huge amounts of alcohol have to be drunk if I mention Christianity but essentially, essentially, the the mythology of the Enlightenment yeah. is that it's an emancipation, not just from the Catholic Church, but from Christianity and religion, full stop. Yes. Whereas I think that that is a myth. And the reason that, um, you know, I, I, I point out that uh, your description of the Enlightenment could equally have applied to the Protestant Reformation, and indeed with certain kind of provisos with how Christianity saw itself against the context of pre-Christian paganism, is that I think that um, the Enlightenment is best understood as one of the great mutational processes in the history of Christian Europe. And Western thought, Tom, I mean, it's it's bigger than just Christian Europe, isn't it? Uh, Well, I'm not sure about that. Um, I, I mean, so the... So what, 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 what Christians do is to say that um, there was darkness and then there was light. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Yeah. And the darkness is equated with, with, with paganism. What the Protestants do is to, is to equate the darkness with you know, the Romish church, yeah. popery, and ref- reformation is about bringing people into light. It's about toppling superstition. It's about banishing idols. What the Enlightenment does is to is to cast the whole sweep of Christian history as the darkness and to yep. essentially identify philosophy as the... Sorry, I see you waving at me. I am, because I'm conscious that some people won't know what the Enlightenment was. So I think you should... You are the master of this. You should give a 90-second overview of the dates, some of the characters. Um, what, what are we talking about here? Because the people... You know, even at the time, they used the word enlightened a lot. 
um, so it's all 18th century, but there's never really been an agreed definition of where it where it happened, or indeed when it happened. No, so it's incredibly difficult. Uh, but one of the things about the Enlightenment that does set it apart, say, from the Reformation, is that there were people living through it who identified it as as you know they, they the name the Enlightenment comes from the 18th century. Yes. Um, and and it's it's such a kind of mythologized period because. Essentially, for for lots of people today, the the Enlightenment stands as the kind of fountainhead of their sense of their identity. So the Enlightenment is often equated with kind of good things that liberal people feel about themselves. Yeah. So the Enlightenment values. I I am a, a defender of Enlightenment values. It's generally it's yeah it's the sort of thing that colonists say. Yes, they? absolutely. I th- I think that to see the Enlightenment to equate the Enlightenment as it existed in the late seventeenth, early and eighteenth century with you know, modernity with the fruits of liberal secular democracy as we have mm. it now is 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 simply wrong because I think it's much more complicated than that and the complexity of it is what makes it so slippery a subject okay. to define. Well, what you've done but, is but you've very said, nicely you've 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 you've, you've basically <laughs> refused to give the dates. <laughs> okay, well, I, I would say that um, I would date it from sixteen sixty. I, I would I would identify it with Spinoza. Do you know Tom? Do you know the date I had? I have written down in my in my notes here. Sixteen sixty. Sixteen sixty. But I've written it down because the foundation of the Royal Society. Well, that shows how much more cosmopolitan I am than you. <laughs> well, you, well, why do you hate Britain? That's my question. Um, <laughs> I don't hate Britain. I love the Dutch. Oh no! Don't don't give me all that. So, um, I, let's say mid to late seventeenth century to that. I guess we would agree. Yeah, the French Revolution is generally taken, the advent of Napoleon. Napoleon is often described as the last enlightened despot. So, um, yeah, it's a sort of, it's a ferment of ideas, isn't it? And, and that sort of cliched, um, description that I gave at the beginning of men in wigs and salons. I mean, that, that is a, a huge part of it. It's about clubs, coffee houses, literary salons, people travel like Voltaire and Diderot traveling across Europe, exchanging ideas, writing books. A very literate public, um, and this sort of sense of of intellectual excitement, I suppose. Yes, I mean, and, and there are incredible varieties. So, so I think on the continent, it's much more court based. Yeah, and I think in the Netherlands and in England, it's it's much more sociable. But I think in both cases, the the it's kind of fun. I think there's. With a lot of the, uh, the 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 kind of the key Enlightenment thinkers, you have a sense that these are people who are really enjoying themselves. Yeah, there's a kind of ex- sense of excitement about it, and absolutely the kind of sociable quality of it is absolutely fundamental. Um, let's, and let's... and the philosophers see themselves as so the philosophers, these French French thinkers. Yeah, they, yes, you know, identifying themselves with the philosophers of ancient Greece, they they see themselves as. Um, well, it's just kind of you know a class apart. They 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 see themselves as people leading the way into light out of darkness, and therefore yeah. they they are not in any way modest people. Well, that brings up Fordek's question. One of our listeners, and he he or she, um, I don't know why I assume a man would call himself Fordek. It just seems like a more stereotypically you know. I imagine him as a reader of the Patrick O'Brien novels, which you foolishly despise. Anyway, Fordek <laughs> says, um, was it really that big a deal? And was it? That's that's the that's the key question, really. So why does it matter? Why why is it a big deal? 
I think it matters. I mean, I think it's of, of seismic significance and not just for, for Europe or for America. I mean, I think America is, the United States is inconceivable without the Enlightenment, but because of the impact of, of, um, of Europe and the United States on the world, it's of, of global significance. And in a way it matters, um, because although I think it's very culturally contingent, I think it's bred very, very specifically of, um, the particular cultural circumstances of, of Europe in the 17th and 18th centuries, it's brilliant at disguising itself as universal. So, so Voltaire, who's probably the most famous of all the, the Enlightenment figures, yeah. he says of the church fathers that, that they thought the whole world should be Christian and that therefore they were necessarily the enemies of the whole world until it was converted. And he saw himself as being superior to that. But actually... <laughs> Of course, Voltaire and the philosopher were doing exactly the same. And enthusiasts for Enlightenment values tend to feel exactly the same way that the entire world should be converted to Enlightenment values. But because they're able to kind of cast it as, as somehow universal. Um, yeah. Again, you know, Voltaire talks about there being a commonality of intellectuals from Peking to, to Cayenne, famously. Um, he's able to pass off this very, very kind of European, West European phenomenon as being universal but anyway i mean what do you think how would you identify the enlightenment uh well it's a massive question so i think it's so there's a there's a, a very famous historian of it called jonathan israel and he argues that it's all about ideas and he says it's not out of circumstances it's out of the ferment of ideas so you shouldn't or that the social and economic context have been overplayed but i think the social and economic context are massively important so i think you know it's it's post Europe has gone through the wars of religion after the Reformation. This, this okay, so, so, so there's a question from Mark Taylor. Yeah. To what extent was it a reaction to the excesses of the early 17th century? I think it is a reaction. I think there's a huge element of that. So, I mean, we've talked before about the English Civil War, obviously Ireland, Scotland, um, the, the horrific impact of the Thirty Years' War in Central Europe. And I think you can see generally a sort of, you know, the next couple of generations that are, they're not, Traumatized is too strong, but they're very strongly affected, influenced by that. There's a reaction against it. Um, but also this is an age of sort of mechanicalism, trade, printing, obviously an explosion of printing. So and literacy. Yeah, literacy going up. So I think something like by the end of the 18th century, about 60% of Brit of, of English men and women, of English men rather, could read and write. I think a smaller percentage of women. So there's just far more readers and writers. And I think the other thing that we haven't, the word we haven't mentioned is science, um, really. And I think science, the idea of the world as a machine with laws, Kepler and his observing the kind of planetary motion, obviously Newton is massive. I mean, Newton is a colossal enlightenment figure, I think, because everybody had read him, everybody knew about his ideas. And this idea that, um, this idea of the world as a kind of watch. Um, I read a brilliant book actually a few weeks ago about, um, clocks in history. Did you see this by a guy who's the curator of the um, Greenwich sort of observatory and stuff? And um, this is the key point, really, when people are making clocks and they're obsessed by this idea of the world as a clock and is there God a watchmaker? As the, as the watchmaker. God, God as the watchmaker. And you can understand how it works. And I think that's something, all those ideas. But, you know, on that topic, a brilliant thing. So Voltaire, yeah. um, he settles in Geneva. Um, and he also has a place at Ferny across the, the, the Swiss French border. And in the later years of his life, he, he, um, he wants to plow something back in. So he, um, sponsors people in, uh, in Switzerland, um, to, to manufacture watches. Does he? Yeah. 
So he's he becomes a watchmaker. He becomes you know, a, he's like well he's kind of he's the, the presiding watchmaker. Where so where Voltaire kind of led, himself Rolex followed. <laughs> yeah, yeah, <laughs> where God had led. Yeah, that's um, yeah. But I think um, this all the other thing that strikes me about the Enlightenment, and maybe you'll you'll say that this is nothing new, but you get a real sense of you could argue this this is where the sort of the citizens of nowhere started. So you've got kind of Voltaire and Diderot and all these French guys who are traveling to Russia and stuff and actually spend a lot of their lives, Voltaire obviously, in exile. Um, and they see themselves as part of a republic of letters. You know, they're not bound by nationality, um, by pe- the nationalisms of the, of the, not nationalism is the wrong word, but by, by the, the narrow loyalties of the past. Well, but also, but also by religious, religious identification. Yes. Well, they, there's a, I, I tell you what's really interesting. There's so much sort of swapping of um, of of identities. So Rousseau, he was a Calvinist, wasn't he? And then he becomes a Catholic, converts to Catholicism, I think. And Gibbon, I mean, Gibbon is sent to Geneva, I think it is, or certainly sent to Switzerland, because he ha- has been flirting with converting to Catholicism. So these are people who are beginning to sort of, I, I don't want to lapse completely into the 21st century and say their identities are fluid, but they're certainly more fluid than they would have been 100 years previously and they see themselves as part of a cosmopolitan they, they self-consciously see themselves as part of a sophisticated cosmopolitan community don't they i, I mean i think that, that the 18th century is a period of massive religious ferment so you've got a, a kind of incredible revival processes going in the catholic church you've got methodism you've got the great awakening in a, a evangelical process and i think that the the enlightenment is best seen as as a further kind of expression of that seismic yeah attempt to make sense of the world and i think it does absolutely exist in the context of the traumas and and the carnage and the horror of the religious wars of the 17th century um and it's often today that process is often cast as a kind of process of discovery of of toleration um i think that that mistakes it i think that basically what people are after is to try and find a kind of um what they would call a civil religion, a, a way of um, a religious settlement that will promote kind of stability, civilized living, um, virtuous citizenship, all these kind of things. And how you get there, you know, is, is, is contested, but it's not so contested that people are going to fight over it. And yeah. in a way that is the fact that you can travel, you know, as Voltaire does to, uh, to Protestant, the, the, you know, the Protestant Dutch Republic, to Protestant London, to um, Frederick the Great, likewise Protestant, Geneva. That is absolutely fundamental to Voltaire's sense of himself. Yeah, I agree with that. I think that's all true. But I think um, a, a key part of it is this idea of light and darkness. Graham Bradbeer has a question, who decided and when? That it should be given the name the Enlightenment. Now, Tom, I, this is mean of me because I know that because I looked this up beforehand, and you didn't. So yeah, um, go on. So give it to us. It's a man called Dubot, a Frenchman who used the the word lumière, called talked about les lumières, the the lights. Um, but actually, that the idea of light and darkness. I know you're going to have loads to say about this, but I'll just say this: you see this again and again. So Kant talks about Immanuel Kant, the great German thinker, talks about Aufklärung, kind of I don't know, clearing of light or whatever. Um, you see people talking again and again about about light, obviously the secret society, the Illuminati, very en- enlightenment group. But also I always think the great en- enlightenment paintings are those paintings which I know you will know and lots of listeners will know by a guy called Joseph Wright of Derby. 
And the most famous one, Experiment on a Bird in an Air Pump, 1768. You can look it up online. An amazing painting. Um, and people are all looking around and they're surrounded by darkness and shadows. And, the ex- and from the experiments, there's this sort of fantastic glow of light. And that's how people thought of themselves in the 18th century. They thought what has gone before was darkness and shadow and superstition. And we are leading the world into light. And I think key to the sense of the Enlightenment is a sense that before that, the previous 1700 years were all about darkness and night and and sort of foolishness and ignorance. Now, I'm sure you will say that that is based on a colossal and utterly misleading stereotype, won't you? No, but, but because I think that... Um, no. As, uh, I, I think a, a sense that um, that people are in darkness and they have to be brought into light has been yeah. a kind of abiding theme of European civilization. Yeah, but they thought that, that, was, that people in, the, in, in 1200 or something were living in darkness, but you don't think they were living in darkness, do you? I mean, you don't, you're not one of these people who, because some people say, oh, uh, oh, before the Enlightenment, all was medievalism and foolishness, and they, you know, people lived in huts and dawed themselves in mud, and they was, uh, didn't no, care about no, science. No, and that's no, obviously rubbish to, to my mind. I think there was no, no, lots I, of science, there was lots of intellectual experiment I, I and think, discovery. I think, and I think there's almost nothing about the Enlightenment that doesn't have medieval, medieval roots. roots. And I would say, yeah. you know, what, what, what I'm saying is that the very idea of seeing, of, 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 Worrying that people are in darkness and they need to be brought into light is absolutely it, constant. So the twelfth century, so the twelfth century reformers, that's exactly what they're doing. You know, they, they, it's the twelfth century reformers who come up with the word modernitas, the idea that uh, modernity is equated with light. You know, this isn't something that comes that's invented yeah. in the eighteenth century. Yeah. It, it 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 has its roots in in the process of reform in the twelfth century. But they come to believe that they've invented it, and that idea has lasted. So people now, you know, you'll open the Guardian or the Times, and there'll be a column saying, "Well, we're standing for Enlightenment values against the medieval barbarism of the Taliban yes. or whoever." Yes, so in other words, we've completely imbibed that Enlightenment sense of itself, and we don't even question it now. Well, but I think that there have been three great convulsive processes where the ambition of kind of i guess kind of intellectual elites to reform the world has generated a revolutionary process one of which is 11th and 12th century where essentially you get the the medieval church the roman church and i would say that catholics today still look back to that as you know an exemplification of darkness being banished by light okay you have it with the reformation and i would say that believing protestants likewise would see the reformation as as absolutely a process of enlightenment and then you have what we call the enlightenment and i would say that kind of liberal secular atheist agnostic whatever look back to the to the enlightenment so those three processes seem to me absolutely you know they they are obviously each one in turn is a reaction to what has gone before but they also are obeying very very similar and identifiable rhythms. So repeating the formulas, basically. Yes, exactly. Okay, so that raises Owen Williams's question. What he says, what did the Enlightenment do for Western intellectual progress that the Renaissance didn't? And that's a really good question, because I was thinking, it's only who I was thinking about, I was thinking about Shakespeare. So Shakespeare is obviously a Renaissance figure, but in, in some ways he feels like a very kind of proto-Enlightenment figure as well, doesn't he? He's, he's got a sense of himself clearly as part of a, a wider, sophisticated European orbit, um, he's looking back to the classical world. Uh, there's lots of stuff about kind of, you, you know, he's obviously thinking through things. Somebody like Hamlet is using the power of reason 
Um, so Shakespeare does seem a very proto-Enlightenment figure, even though we wouldn't put him in there. So is there a difference, Tom, between the Enlightenment and the Renaissance? And is the Enlightenment doing something different? But again, the Renaissance is an incredibly slippery term. And what we call the Renaissance, you know, kind of whatever, 15th century Florence. Um, yeah. But the the idea of looking back to the classical world and finding things there that are worthy of bringing back to life is something that, that's going on, you know, at least from the time of Charlemagne. And, right. you know, so, so in a sense, the, the Enlightenment is a process of Renaissance because you have, you know, the, the way in which um, many of the, the leading Enlightenment figures in their kind of ambition to shove Christianity to one side claim to be the heirs, say, of Socrates or whoever yeah. is a, another form of Renaissance. But there is... There is, I, I, okay, I accept that there's, this is a whole massive continuum and that, you know, we just are putting, dividing it up slightly artificially and putting labels on it. But people at the time had a sense of ferment, didn't they? They had a sense of time, intellectual history accelerating and a sense of ideas being swapped in a way they weren't being swapped before and that they're living. Into, that's why they talk about themselves as les Lumières, as enlightened. It's why the, and there's a particular kind of vocabulary, isn't there? I mean, even Edmund Burke, who's often seen as a sort of counter-enlightenment figure because he's the father of conservatism, talks about when he writes to the electors of Bristol and he says, I owe you, you know, my enlightened judgment and my conscience. And he's using a lot of kind of enlightenment words and reason and science. I mean, those things do make it feel different. There's even just the tone and the sort of, well, the flavour of it feels a little bit different than, let's say, the ferment of ideas in the early okay. 16th century. Okay, so they're not using the word science, and certainly not in English, because the word science doesn't take on the meaning that it does until the, the, the late 19th century. And I think that there is a tendency, which is to kind of identify the, the, the sense of a war between religion and science, which emerges in the late 19th century, back onto the 18th century. And undoubtedly, that's the case because Voltaire, again, in particular, is brilliant at picking on, say, Galileo. He, 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 he enshrines Galileo as an example of a, a, an enlightened figure who is silenced by a, a repressive apparatus of, of, of the Catholic Church. And so this gets reconstructed in the late 19th century as an example of this kind of timeless war between religion and science. But it's not it, that those categories are, are not seen as mutually opposed in quite the same way. That they, so there's maybe an the argument that Enlightenment has slightly been invented by Victorian writers, do you think? I think absolutely. I, I think our modern understanding, the 21st century, is, is one that's been massively mediated by what's gone between the 18th century and, and now. Okay. That's, that all sounds fair. But right? reason, I mean, again, yeah. reason. So it's often, again, the Enlightenment is often described as the age of reason. Yes. But that's a very old-fashioned way of seeing it. And and re the, the relationship of, you know, the leading Enlightenment figures to reason is incredibly ambivalent and contested. You know, so Kant's great work is the critique of pure reason. Yeah. Um, Hume famously says that reason is and ought only to be the slave of the passions. Well, so this raises an interesting question about um, the difference between continental enlightenment and, let's say, an Anglo-Saxon enlightenment. Um, so there's always been this idea that the continental, you know, which people like me love to trade in, that the continental um, enlightenment is all about sort of airy-fairy abstractions and mad utopian ideas, and that the Anglo-Saxon enlightenment, if there is such a thing, is all about skipping sceptical and empirical and rooted in kind of, you know, common sense, Dr. Johnson kicking his rock or whatever and saying that he's therefore proved matter exists 
um, yeah. and, all, and all this sort of stuff. Do you think there is a difference? Do you think that there is a kind of um, Anglo-Saxon exceptionalism going on and that you know, the French are talking about one thing and we're talking about something different? So, so I, think, I think the fundamental division is, is not between, um, say, Britain and the continent, but between uh, essentially Protestant countries and Catholic countries. Right. So I think that, um, say, in England, in Scotland, in the Dutch Republic, by and large, although there are there are exceptions, uh, Spinoza being the most obvious, um, the process of enlightenment is conservative. It tends to go with the grain of the establishment. Uh, it, it doesn't aim to overthrow it. Um, I think in France, a Catholic country, the leading figures of the of the enlightenment are much more um much more confrontational yeah they're spy- I was about to say they're spikier aren't they something like yeah much, yeah uh, or Diderot you know who who um kind of writes the insect inc- encyclopedie that was most beautiful French <laughs> that was like Peter Sellers doing Antarctic I, know. I know well I was about to pronounce it in the English way and then I suddenly was slamming on the brakes <laughs> <laughs> chief inspector Diderot <laughs> chief inspector Diderot so 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 Diderot is an overt atheist yeah uh, Voltaire I mean vehemently detests Christianity. I mean, he famously says that, you know, if God didn't exist, we'd have to invent him. Mm. Um, and he, 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 he expresses it in a way that you would, I'm sure, entirely approve. It would confirm your darker suspicions of um, <laughs> the snobbery of, uh, of French intellectuals. Yeah. And he says that, you know, he, he doesn't believe in Christian nonsense, but he wants his, you know, his tailor, oh, his God. servants and his wife to believe in God, that, because otherwise he'll be cheated or cuckolded. That, that's so, so Virginia Woolf, isn't it? <laughs> yes. Yes. <laughs> so, uh, and of course, um, you know, Voltaire has this, this famous um, letter that he writes in 1764, where he, he, he kind of predicts that um, the Enlightenment, the blaze of the Enlightenment, will um kind of create a, a, a great ferment and that um you know that the, the the younger generations are, are are incredibly lucky because they're going to see great things amazing things are going to happen um and Voltaire and Diderot we cannot help but now see them in the context of of the revolution French revolution that's going to yeah. come but that's that that's that idea isn't it that they are more radical and or and that that's more abstract and more idealistic and that protestant thinkers tend to be more conservative but for example historians like roy porter say but that's because the enlightenment has been successful in let's say britain that it's embedded that that kind of thinking is embedded in kind of political circles in whiggish circles and so they don't have to be confrontational so right. people like you know, I was just trying to think of, you know, you think of some of the great figures. I mean, Jonathan Swift, Edward Gibbon, Burke, but Hume, Locke, Hobbes. You know, there's a great list of of, of British Enlightenment thinkers, Adam Smith, all the Scottish. Well, you thinkers. say British. I mean, yeah, it, I think the Scottish and the English Enlightenments are a bit different. Very distinctive. So, so if we just look specifically, so question from Michael Taylor, great historian, uh, friend of the show. He asked, Scotland had an Enlightenment, but did England? Well, Scotland. Okay, so this I have a very firm answer to this, Tom. Scotland, Do you? Has a, Dr. understandably, Johnson. Scotland <laughs> understandably has a very strong sense of having had an enlightenment, and absolutely rightly so. You know, people like Adam Smith um, are, you know, some of the great thinkers of early modern, modern Western um, sort of 
culture. They, and it's understandable that a small country like Scotland, especially one that's now in the 21st century that is becoming much more uh, seeing itself as distinct from England is very keen to celebrate that. England never talks about having an English enlightenment, but that doesn't mean that there weren't English enlightened thinkers. So of course there were. I mean, I mentioned Gibbon. Dr. Johnson is nothing if not an enlightenment figure with his dictionary and his club and, and all that sort of carry on. I mean, I think it's undeniable that England has an enlightenment, but because there's less to kick against, because they're not kicking against the grain, because they are going with the grain, there's less of a sense of them as a movement because they don't have to have that sense because they're not outsiders. They're part of the establishment. But isn't it also, and the English say this throughout the 18th century with a, a tone of immense smugness, which I'm now <laughs> going to repeat. Yeah, do. Basic, basically, the kind of the, the key, you know, the, the, the people that people in the Enlightenment look back to, and this absolutely includes French philosophers, Voltaire you know, preeminently, are looking to figures of the English 18th, of 17th century. So Bacon, Francis yeah, Bacon. Francis you know, Bacon, kind of scientific kind of, method, exactly. Um, Newton. Yeah, massive. Locke. In Locke all of yeah. them, absolutely massive figures that get enshrined by 18th century um, Well, Shakespeare. Thinkers. Voltaire was obsessed with Shakespeare. Yeah, but Shakespeare's different because Shakespeare's kind of, you know, is, is, is condemned for not obeying the kind of classical regularities. But, well, but Bacon, Bacon, an Newton, and Bacon, Newton and Locke are all... Yeah. Massive, massive figures. And then you have the Glorious Revolution, which you, know, you can debate. I mean, the views on in Scotland and Ireland on how glorious it is would, would be contested. But in England, it comes to bed down and it embeds an idea of the English constitution. Yeah, which of course as, as one As one that, yes, that, 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 that kind of um, enables enlightened values to flourish. Yeah. And, and so... A, a crucial part of the 18th century enlightenment is ang Anglomania. It's a kind of a, a looking to England as an absolute model. I completely agree with you, Tom. I think so. If you see one of the great creations of the enlightenment is the American constitution and the, the American Republic itself, then um, that is informed by the ideas of the French thinker Montesquieu, the idea of the separation of powers and so on. And he thought he'd got that from, from Britain. From what from the from the English model. I mean, he was wrong. He slightly misunderstood the English model. But his Anglomania was what he then transported back. Anglomanie. Anglomanie. Very good, Inspector Clouseau. <laughs> <laughs> um, right. I think. Well, well, are we, I are think we, on that patriotic note, we should go yeah, to a break. Should you go and practice your French, and then we'll um, <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> we'll, we'll reconvene and and shed some more light on the world of of darkness and superstition after the break. A bientôt. Support for this episode comes from the National Theatre. So, Tom, we are talking once again about the National Theatre's very own streaming platform, and it is called the National Theatre at Home. Yeah, it's a fantastic way to watch loads of brilliant theatre from the comfort of your sofa at home. There's no need to miss out just because a show has sold out or because you can't get a babysitter or because a trip to London is too far for one evening. And this month, Dominic, they are launching the Olivier award-winning musical, The Little Big Things, an extraordinary true story about an ordinary family. When one moment changes everything, Henry's family are split between a past they no longer recognise and a future they could never foresee. It is based on the Sunday Times best-selling autobiography by Henry Fraser. It is a great new musical about the transformative power of family. 
and how it is the little things that matter the most. Oh, Tom, it's so life-affirming, isn't it? You can subscribe now for only £9.99 a month. And to find out more, visit ntathome.com. That's ntathome.com. Hello, welcome back to The Rest is History. We are talking the Enlightenment. Um, and when we left, we were being very patriotic, Dominic. So it's I think we should, unusual, sl- we should slightly, um, we should la- allow the clouds slightly to, to blot out the blaze of, of, of the sun okay. and go uh, and begin with a question from Native Classicist. Yeah. Uh, who writes, as a Native American, I was only aware of Thomas Jefferson calling us merciless Indian savages. Listening to Gibbons, The History of the Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire, on audiobook, he describes countless peoples as savages. Can you discuss the 18th century European mindset? So this feeds in very well to uh, a, a kind of sense that is also very popular at the present. You know, there are people who enshrine the Enlightenment as, as absolutely the seedbed of liberalism and everything. But also yeah. there are those who argue that it essentially has created all that's the worst in, in the modern world, that it's yes. underpinned Western colonialism and racism. Scientific and racism. Kinds of, like yeah. So what, what's your take on that? Um, well, the Enlightenment clearly coincides with the, you know, the great peak of the slave trade, doesn't it? And um, there's no doubt that there was always a darker side to the Enlightenment, as there is a dark side to all ages. I, mean, I don't think that necessarily means the Enlightenment is uniquely depraved. But I think it's certainly true that the the you know when you think about scientific racism, for example, the idea that the world is divided into different humanities divided into different races, some with different achievements, different accomplishments, and so on that are innate um that obviously is informed by an age that loves to classify and loves to yeah. divide things up and and label them and and is also an age in which a lot of these people and their associates are making tons of money from the triangular trade um, with the colonies. So I think that side of it is undoubtedly there. And there is undoubtedly, I mean, I'm sure you all have a lot to say about this, that there is this obsession and absolute fascination with the idea of the savage. And you see that in Robinson Crusoe. You see that in, um, in Rousseau, the idea of the noble savage, people in a state of nature. Um, and, the, and the sort of, they are, they are absolutely obsessed with this idea, with the tension between civilization and barbarism or savagery. And I think Gibbon writing about all that in The Decline and Fall, I mean, that is merely one example of, you know, a huge sort of range of stuff. Yeah. I, I mean, I think um, that one of the ways in which, say, Voltaire or Hume, both of whom are, uh, are some of you know, the more radical enemies of Christianity, one of the ways in which they're able to liberate themselves from the heritage of Christianity is that they they – they don't feel the need to subscribe to the the Genesis story, the idea that all human, you know, all humans have descended from Adam and Eve, and therefore have have one single source. So Voltaire, in particular, is a great enthusiast of the idea of polygenesis, the idea oh, yes. that different yeah. races have emerged at different points of time, uh, and that, of course, I mean, he's he's pretty racist. He 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 is able to kind of rank races according to ability and it seems that hume does the same i mean there's there's this kind of controversy over hume that he's been cancelled yeah he's been cancelled by edinburgh university i mean he was the great you know i mean he's the the the, the, type the titanic figure in the scottish enlightenment Um, i mean what you would say in their defense is they don't know where that racism is going to lead but at the same time you would in in the the case the prosecutors would say but they do know that the trade in slaves 
is going on. Yeah, but so so, so Hume, Hume, I mean, Hume is not in favour of the slave trade, and it's it's unclear why he he says you know Africans are inferior to white people. It's mm. and he seems to. I mean, it's it's unclear why he thinks that, but he particularly did think that. Um, yeah, uh, and I think that you know he. I would imagine that what underlies it is, you know, as I say, that he he know he doesn't feel any obligation to hold this idea that that all human beings are essentially you know, created, created in the in, in the image of God. I, on the specifics of of Native Americans, um, actually, a lot of the um, Enlightenment figures are very hostile to European colonialism. They 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 they, they yeah. regard it as as very pernicious. Um, you have uh, William Robertson, again, one of the great figures of the Scottish Enlightenment historian who writes um, History of the Americas. Um, and he he brilliantly, <laughs> he, he describes the Aztecs and the Incas as polished nations, you know, which is the highest praise that any figure in the Enlightenment can offer. Right. If you're a polished nation, I mean, that's absolutely the best. And he, he, he describes the Native Americans it, as being like the ancient Britons. So the key there is that, I mean, he, you know, he's not in favor of savagery and Gibbon does the same. I mean, Gibbon, Gibbon has great fun in describing, say, the Scots as, as being cannibals and utter yeah. savages, yeah. but he's doing it in the full consciousness that Scotland is now, you know, the great center of enlightenment. Yeah. So the, I, the philosopher, I mean, with the exception of Rousseau, tend not to be in favor of, of people they would describe as savages, but I think most of them see you know, this is part of the kind of the Enlightenment universalism that 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 everyone can become enlightened, and as examples of that, they would they would show the development of say Britons from the savagery of the Roman period to the enlightened and polished state of Britain in the 18th century. Yeah, although this is then quite different, isn't it, from Rousseau? Rousseau just de- deplores what he sees as kind of what's he called a civil man or something like that. Um, he he thinks very bad you know badly of the kind of process of civilization. He thinks we should get back to a kind of state of grace that we're, that we're born in before civilization has had its, its corrupting effect. So he's, I mean, he's the man that you associate more than anybody else with the idea of the, the noble savage, don't you? Well, and, and that, I mean, that kind of, in one sense, goes back to Locke, who argues that, you know, there are no innate ideas that, that each human being is a kind of tabula rasa, a blank That's slate. Right. Yes. Um, and that, Locke is also a human rights man, isn't he? The idea of inalienable yeah. human rights. But 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 also this is this is an, <laughs> get ready with your drinking game. This is also framed by a, a kind of Christian argument that I goes. I thought it was going to be cricket. I thought no, it was going to be not, cricket. No. And it wasn't <laughs> because because there's this argument between Augustine and Pelagius um, at, at the you know the uh, in the um, fourth or fifth century about whether he, are, are humans fallen? Are they naturally evil? Yeah. Is is there a kind of taint of sin? Or are they naturally good? And Pelagius argues they're naturally good. Augustine argues, no, you know, we're, we're all steeped in sin. And it's the Augustinian vision that wins out. I think a crucial part of the Enlightenment is a reaction against that and, and a kind of return to the Pelagian idea that actually we are naturally good. So yes. Rousseau famously, you know, man is born free everywhere, is in, in chains. But you get it with Diderot as well, who, who argues that, that humans are not naturally evil, that um, it's it's bad education, it's, you know, it's pressures in society, it's evil laws that serve to corrupt us. And that's absolutely, you know, that's clearly a crucial part of what feeds into modern political argument. I mean, there's a kind of buried argument there between Augustine and Pelagius, between, I guess it would be kind of 
Rousseau and Hobbes, wouldn't it? Yeah, it it's is Rousseau versus Hobbes. There. Life um, is nasty, brutish and short versus, you know, let's all be kind. Um, but of course, famously, you would love this. Rousseau is an absolute horror. He's a t- <laughs> actually, I've, I, I've, I've actually dug out. Do you know what Diderot said about Rousseau? Yeah. False, as vain as Satan, ungrateful, cruel, hypocritical and wicked. He sucked ideas from me, used them himself and then affected to despise me. Let's yes. hope I never say that about you, Tom. Yeah. <laughs> It'd be a horror, wouldn't it? So, 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 so recently, I mean, but by and large, you know, we talked about the, the philosopher, the enlightenment figures are, are fun. I mean, yeah. they're, they're kind of entertaining people to be with. Rousseau is not. There is so, so he goes to stay with Hume and Hume is, is a famously charming man. I mean, he's great company. Everybody loves Hume. Even, uh, even people who are, you know, shocked by his, 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 um, atheistical views. But Rousseau and Hume, even Hume couldn't get on with Rousseau. But Rousseau is troubled, isn't he? Because he has a dreadful problem about going to the toilet. Yes. Did you know this? He has some issue. I did. It, it's, it's kind of a bit unclear. Is it that he can't go and therefore he, he just is storing up vast quantities of urine and that's, that must, makes him very uncomfortable and so he doesn't go out or something? Is that, is that what it is? Well, what I do know is that uh, Boswell, the biographer of Dr. Johnson, yeah. he goes on a tour and he, he goes to visit Rousseau. And Rousseau is always trying to get away from him by going on the toilet. <laughs> right. And, and, and Boswell follows him into the toilet on several occasions. And what happens? Ask him exactly, what's going on in there? <laughs> yeah, exactly. What's happening? <laughs> yeah. um, also, Diderot. Do you know um, what Diderot blamed the, the greatest cause of flatulence on? Rousseau? <laughs> the, the potato. Really? Yeah. Well, the potato, I suppose, is a relative novelty. Um, yeah. uh, probably, say, so he was not a fish and chips man. Clearly. No, no, absolutely not. Um, anyway, uh, listen, uh, we, yeah. we mustn't get into... Um, let's do some questions. Let's do... Into um, poo. So let's do Jeff. Jeff, let's do Jeff and caffeine. Jeff says, what's the role of caffeine in the era's narrative? Do you want to answer that, Tom? What is the role of caffeine? No, I think you should answer that. That's very much you. I think it's very important. And I think, actually, if you put England back into the story, England and Holland, I suppose, back into the story of the Enlightenment, from which they're often left out, then caffeine looms very large. Because, of course, coffee houses are one of the sort of paradigmatic public spaces where people are getting information, yes. they're reading newspapers, they're swapping ideas. So caffeine absolutely matters. Um, I think, and I think particularly in England, um, I think in Scotland, the uh, it's the universities that are the, the powerhouses of, yes. um, of the Enlightenment. And I think in, in France, it's the court, um, you know, particularly the court of Frederick the Great, where Voltaire goes, and then they have spectacular bust up. And he yeah. has to leave. Um, so I think it's it's courts, universities, and coffee houses. And they're different in each country. Yeah. yeah. I think that's yeah. absolutely right. Um, so Gordon Smith asked about Scotland, the Scottish Enlightenment. Where does it come from? Why does it come from such a small country? Well, you've kind of answered that, haven't you, Tom? I mean, Scotland is a small country, but it's also part of a much bigger enterprise at this point. So Scotland's in, in, in the cities are enjoying massive economic growth. But as you said, the universities are absolutely crucial to the Scottish Enlightenment, aren't they? Yeah, unlike unlike England, where we only have Oxford and Cambridge, yeah. which are at their most kind of port-soaked. <laughs> <laughs> yes, that's true. Yeah. yeah, that's just sort of old clergymen contemplating <laughs> the meaninglessness kind of, of life in there. <laughs> Snuff-stained waistcoats, <laughs> dusty wigs. Yeah. Okay. Well, that, what was it? Good, brilliant. So we've solved the causes of the Scottish Enlightenment there. <laughs> um, uh, Pat, Pat Roberts. Pat Roberts, is it possible to have a good drama about the Enlightenment when compared with Tudors and Nazis, it's just blokes in a room writing books? Well, that's a very glamorous um, pastime, I would say. E.g., 
Barry, he, Bat Roberts mentions Amadeus, Barry Lyndon, The Great on TV, A Royal Affair about Enlightened Absolutism in Denmark. I'm not aware of that series or film or whatever, but um, could you have a... The Great, have you seen The Great? No, it's Catherine the Great. Uh, isn't Catherine it? the Great. Is it good? Is it great? I, I think it's hilarious. I mean, it has absolutely tangential relationship to. Right. I, I mean, it's more like Blackadder than it is okay. Barry Lyndon. But it's very funny. There was a very funny episode where, was it actually Voltaire? Um, completely ahistorically turns up and is <laughs> Catherine the Great is all over and then decides it's very boring. It's really and sends him away. Yeah. Is he played by a comedy Frenchman? <laughs> I can't remember. Oh, I, I'd love if they got Gerard Dupuyer to play him. Um, <laughs> No, he's, uh, too, he's too large. Yeah, but that would be the that would be the joke, there, wouldn't it? He'd That's be completely really. wrong. Um, yeah. What about um, John Adams? Have you seen John Adams? That's a brilliant series and very enlightened. I mean, he's a very enlightened figure, as are Jefferson and Franklin and all the other people that crop up in the series. Have you seen that, Tom? No, I haven't. Paul Giamatti is uh, John Adams, and he's very good. So, but if you haven't seen it, there's no point talking about it. Uh, uh, but what, what I would like to say about um, about uh, Franklin, inventor of the lightning rod. Yeah. But there was another inventor of the lightning rod who was a Czech Catholic priest. Was there? So Benjamin Franklin has he's done a bit of a Russo. He's stolen he's sucked. No, he hasn't stolen his, it, but 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 it's kind of interesting that, that one of them, you know, is enshrined as a Yes, of course. A kind of model of uh, progress, whereas the fact that there was a Czech Catholic priest is slightly buried. Okay. Yeah, well, that, I mean, the faith generally gets written out of this. I mean, I don't want to set you set you off again, but no, you will set me off. But uh, faith generally gets written out of this story, doesn't it? Because a lot of these people are fascinated by religion. Some of them are very religious themselves. Newton, Most of them famously. Are. I mean, the, the, um, the atheists are an absolute minority. But that kind of gets suppressed. In, yeah. So all we do people now do is talk about atheists and deism and that other side of things. Um, well, de- deism by definition isn't atheism. Yeah, of course, of course. Um. um Okay, how about Lloyd? Now, Lloyd asks what I would call the John Gray question. Brilliant thinker, John Gray, essayist for the New Statesman. Um, he says, while Western liberalism is often described as part of an enlightenment project, how much can we say that the competitor ideologies of communism or fascism are also enlightenment projects? And of course, the thinker John Gray would say they absolutely are. They are the, they are the kind of logical development of enlightenment ideas about reason and the general will. And, and these kinds of things. So, what do you think about communism and fascism, Tom? Enlightenment. Well, you projects? know, because we've done we've done episodes on them. Yeah. So, and you know that I, you, I would trace its origins much further back than the Enlightenment. Would you? I would say they are Enlightenment. Certainly, communism is an Enlightenment project, isn't it? Post Enlightenment project. No, it's it's a post Christian project. Post Christian, of course. Um, t- that's that's another drink on. That's another tick on the bingo card. Um, uh, and talking of which, um, yeah, Diogo Morgado. Yes, does the Muslim the world show. does the Muslim world need a kind of enlightenment today? The power of the religion in everyday life is staggering. Something that isn't seen in the West. I think you should answer that question. Okay, I think that's a really interesting question. Um, we, we're planning to do an episode on Napoleon in Egypt, which is really, um, I mean, it's it's a fascinating episode because you talked about Napoleon as a, a an, an enlightenment despot. Um, it's it's the first meeting between the Enlightenment and the world of Islam. What I think that question highlights, and I think that the episode of Napoleon in Egypt definitely does, is the degree to which, as has been said throughout, the Enlightenment is a very culturally contingent phenomenon. It's rooted in the specifics of Western Europe and specifically in deeply rooted Christian assumptions 
And it's when it comes up against, say, a civilization as rich and complex and ancient as the Muslim world that you come to recognize that. And today you see that people often talk about the Enlightenment values in the context of Islam. Yeah. Say, I'm a defender of the Enlightenment values, and that therefore entitles me to do draw cartoons of Muhammad or whatever, or mm-hmm. pose the veil or something like that. Um, and it, it, it highlights the way in which the Enlightenment, like Islam and like the Christianity that it, it emerges from, is universalist in its scope. Yeah, of course it is. People talk about exporting Enlightenment yeah, values, don't they? Absolutely. And so that thing that I said, you know, where Voltaire is sneering at the Church Fathers because they want to convert the whole world to their way of thinking. That's exactly what the Enlightenment is is all about. And so yeah. therefore, what do you do with something like Islam that is similarly universalist, yes. um, you know, similarly rich and complex? It, it's very indigestible. And really, that's the, you know, that's the, if you're an enlightener, if you're an enthusiast for the Enlightenment, then of course you think that the Muslim world should 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 have an Enlightenment in exactly the same way that if you're a devout Christian, you think that Muslims should become Christian. Or yeah. indeed, if you're a Muslim, you think that, that the rest of the world should become Muslim. It's, yeah. it's and, you know, we, we still live in the 21st century in this kind of tension between the rival universalisms of what we could, used to call Christendom. And, and the Muslim world. Yeah, I, I, I pretty much agree with that, Tom. I think the, uh, the key thing is defenders of the or, or, or self-declared enthusiasts for the Enlightenment often don't accept and don't see what I think you rightly say, that the Enlightenment is itself culturally contingent, that it's based on a comes out of a particular world at a particular place in time, and that its claims to universal human values are themselves rooted in something. And it, it, it's that. It's a, to me, it's as though they can't see that that is itself, you know, a universalized project, just as you say. And, you know, that sort of thing of like, let's go to Afghanistan, let's go to Iraq yeah. with our copies of Condide. <laughs> uh, and, yes. And uh, we, we're doing it in the name of universal human rights. Yeah. I sort of think, well, why can't you see why to them, to, to the people you're claiming to convert, you're just a bunch of Western, you know, colonizers? There's- there's a very funny episode where Voltaire, who's a great enthusiast for China, which he sees as a kind of enlightened despotism that should be a model for Europeans and doesn't have Christianity and therefore is highly to be applauded. Uh, but he knows nothing about China whatsoever. And then he meets with a Jesuit who's been in China, <laughs> who's been at the imperial court and corrects him on his, you know, misapprehensions so Voltaire has a massive strop about this and starts enshrining india as the model of it <laughs> no, that's funny has he been um, to india no of course no no course knows nothing about no, it no he knows <laughs> nothing about it at all so he's basically voltaire voltaire is a great enthusiast for rejecting his idea of watch of how a state should be organized and say, well, this is what you know in china or india or yeah. whatever uh, that's um, funny i think we have we saw have we done the enlightenment now oh uh, there's one more question which we, somebody asked online i've forgotten who it is I'm terribly sorry if this is your question, but I thought it was fascinating about Freemasonry um, oh. and about Freemasonry and the Enlightenment. And so many of these people were Freemasons. Voltaire was a Freemason. Montesquieu was a Freemason. Diderot, Goethe, Mozart, Benjamin Franklin, who you talked about, was a very keen Freemason. And of course, Masonic imagery um, appears on you know the dollar and in sort of the the American Republican, the the, the iconography of the American Republic. Um, and I think Freemasonry was absolutely central to the Enlightenment. I mean, a Masonic Lodge was like the sort of Soho House, the, pri- the trendy private members club of the enlightened world. So Masonic Lodges would be established all over the, all over Europe. 
Um, and again, it's something that starts in, in Scotland and in England, which sort of reinforces that point that we always think of the Enlightenment as continental, but that all these people basically belong to Anglo-Scottish clubs, which are their Masonic lodges. So are you basically saying the Enlightenment is essentially British? It's British, British Masonic conspiracy. I think that's what I'm, that's what I'm basically saying. Um, no, I think it is. I think, I think it's a splendid note, patriotic note on which to end. It, it is neat. But I tell you what we should do, though, Tom, which we haven't done, which we said we would do. Who's your favourite and least favourite enlightened Enlightenment thinkers? Um, I, I'm very fond of Diderot. What? Because you like um, encyclopedias. He he was he was a very kind, brilliant, generous man. Um, I, I think the the scale of his um kind of intellectual inquiries is just phenomenal i think he 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 kind of um is a is a contradiction to the idea that the enlightenment was just about um classifying and um splitting and dividing he he was he was fascinated by by the gaps by the the kind of areas where things didn't quite fit so he's very very sophisticated um and he was very fond of beavers <laughs> uh the um the furry kind, right? Uh, and he was reduced to tears by the um, by the way that the beaver were being beavers were being wiped out by trappers in wow. uh, in North America. And he um, he said, "Who? How how can people persecute this gentle, appealing, pitiable animal?" And I think that's the Enlightenment at its absolute best. Well, I, I can't improve on that. Actually, I'm just not going to say anything other than. Okay. Um, well, I tell you. What, well, you can come in with your worst. Who's your? Who's your? Oh, my worst is Russo. Obviously, I think Russo is a terrible <laughs> man. I mean, we've sort of advertised how bad Russo was. Edmund Burke. I didn't mention Edmund Burke on Russo. Burke, obviously, a great. In a, I think a great product in the Enlightenment. One of my favourite Enlightenment thinkers. Burke said of Russo, he entertained no principle but vanity. With this vice, he was possessed to a degree, to a degree little short of madness. And obviously, you know, Rousseau slightly. If I was if I was Rousseau, I would be, I would be looking at the French Revolution and thinking, you know, doesn't look great for me. My my reputation, you know, where did I go wrong? But of course, Rousseau was so vain that he would never have done that. He was he a terrible hit. father as well, wasn't he? Yeah, I mean, he's just a terrible man. That business about separating kids from their parents and yeah. educating them, and you know, all that stuff. He's very but, much the kind of the ancestor of the um, the, the kind of person on Twitter who says. Be kind. Be kind. And then you find, you find yeah. that they're behaving appallingly. Yeah. They say be kind, and then you find they've written to your employer to, yeah, to, to get, get you sacked. sacked. Yeah. Yes. That's exactly who Rousseau is. Yeah. Um, I okay. can think of so many uh, real current 21st century Rousseaus, but I'm not going to name them because I don't want to end up in a libel court. And so on that note, I think we really should end. Um, don't you, Tom? Yeah, I think we've brought enormous light to this murky, <laughs> we really have. To this murky topic. <laughs> and uh, nobody ever need talk about the Enlightenment again because we've done it. Nature and nature's laws lay hid in night. God said, let the rest of history be and always light. Bye-bye. Bye. Thanks for listening to The Rest is History. For bonus episodes early access, ad-free listening, and access to our chat community, please sign up at restishistorypod.com. That's restishistorypod.com.